Hello, my name is Paul Matthew Carr, and I never drink wine. everyone and welcome to this thing that I do. It's called the Lcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr and I like to make things up and write them down. Today on the program, a Halloween-inspired episode where I'll be reading from Dracula, the Bram Stoker classic and spawn of a century's worth of vampire-related material. Before I begin, a little backstory of this program. This show you're listening to is something I started years ago, then stopped. Then I tried to relaunch twice and failed. This was in part due to uh, personal drama going on in my life and then, you know, the world falling into despair and disarray, and other matters took precedent. But here I am again to revive it once more, third time's a charm, I suppose. And I'm excited to do this because this is something I've wanted to do for a while now, and that is read a favorite passage from a book or story that I particularly enjoy and give, not necessarily an analysis exactly, but a personal reaction the reasons behind my enjoyment of the passage, uh, what my impressions are, and how it's inspired or influenced me in my own writing and storytelling. Also, it's, you know, just fun to read, and I have a good time doing it. Now, I've planned several episodes doing this sort of thing, mostly from older public domain stories, and primarily from gothic horror and weird tales, because, you know, that's where my interests lie. But who knows, uh, maybe I'll throw in a romance or a comedy in just to change things up a bit. <laughs> I also had a notion to, uh, to read a platonic dialogue, you know, using different voices. I thought that might be fun, but honestly, I don't know if my acting and voiceover skills are up to that sort of thing, but yeah, we'll see. So what I've chosen for this revival episode is a passage from Dracula. Dracula the novel has been a favorite of mine for a long time and has prompted many discussions over the years with friends, professors, friends who are professors, it's a, it's a novel that provides a wealth of interpretation and themes that can be mulled over. And the passage I've chosen can provide a, well, I hope to show, it can provide a jumping-off point for your own story, if you choose to do so. But first, a little background to set the stage. Bram Stoker was not the first to write a vampire story. Novels in the genre including Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu and Polidorius the Vampire had been published decades before the publication of Dracula in 1897. In fact, if you want to get technical about it, tales of vampires go back hundreds of years. Medieval folktales from Europe, myths from Greece and Rome, and as far east as China and Japan. While Stoker wasn't the first, what he did do was popularize the vampire in literature and public imagination. So much so that the name Dracula is now synonymous with vampire. Even if someone's never read a vampire novel or seen a vampire movie, if you say the word Dracula, they know exactly what you're talking about. Upon its publication, Dracula was not an immediate success. Although it did receive critical acclaim, and Stoker himself was talked about in the company of Edgar Allan Poe and Emily Bronte, it was not a bestseller, and Stoker didn't make much money from the novel. It wasn't until 1922 when F.W. Murnau released his unauthorized film adaptation Nosferatu, and the publicity from the subsequent lawsuit filed by the Stoker estate, that the novel found renewed interest. And at that point, Hollywood took notice. And with the release of Universal's Dracula in 1932, the book has never been out of print. And it's only gained in popularity. Scholars love to argue over its various interpretations, artists love to mine it for inspiration, 
and the general public just love to enjoy a chilling, creepy adventure story. And Dracula has spawned hundreds and hundreds of adaptations from novels, films, TV shows, comics, stage plays, even a ballet. The novel is written in an epistolary style, that is, in the form of letters, correspondence, journal entries, that sort of thing. I'll admit, it's not my particular favorite style of writing, but it, it does provide the reader with a focused point of view. It hones in on a single character's thoughts and feelings, and in the case of Dracula, that has numerous characters, the epistolary style does allow you to not only get to know each individual character's voice, but also gives insights into how those characters feel about each other in a very personal and intimate way. So it does work well in that regard. Now the passage I'm going to read is from fairly early on in the novel. It's at the end of chapter 3, and it's an entry from Jonathan Harker's journal. Jonathan Harker is a solicitor. He's traveled to Transylvania to help Count Dracula close a real estate deal. Ooh, the horror. <laughs> Dracula's going to buy some land and an estate in England. And while Jonathan is with the Count, he is at first impressed with his graciousness and hospitality, but soon comes to realize that some very strange things are happening, and that he's not really a guest, but rather a prisoner. At one point, Dracula tells Jonathan not to wander the castle, and especially to stay away from a particular part of the castle. And if he does go to that particular part of the castle, do not fall asleep. Jonathan then proceeds to wander the castle, go to that particular part of the castle, and, you guessed it, he falls asleep. This is what happens next. I was not alone. The room was the same, unchanged in any way since I had come into it. I could see along the floor in the brilliant moonlight my own footsteps marked where I had disturbed the long accumulation of dust. In the moonlight opposite me were three young women, ladies by their dress and manner. I thought at the time I must be dreaming when I saw them, for, though the moonlight was behind them, they threw no shadow on the floor. They came close to me and looked at me for some time, and then they whispered together. Two were dark and had high aquiline noses like the Count, and great dark piercing eyes that seemed to be almost red when contrasted with the pale yellow moon. The other was fair, as fair as can be, with great wavy masses of golden hair and eyes like pale sapphires. I seemed to somehow know her face, and to know it in connection with some dreamy fear but I could not recollect at the moment how or where. All three had brilliant white teeth that shone like pearls against the ruby of their voluptuous lips. There was something about them that made me uneasy, some longing, and at the same time some deadly fear. I felt in my heart a wicked, burning desire that they would kiss me with those red lips. It is not good to note this down. At least someday, it should meet my Mina's eyes and cause her pain, but it is the truth. They whispered together, and then they all three laughed, such a silvery musical laugh, but as hard as though the sound could never have come through the softness of human lips. It was like the intolerable tingling sweetness of water glasses when played on by a cunning hand. The fair girl shook her head coquettishly, and the other two urged her on. One said, Go on. You are the first, and we shall follow. 
Yours is the right to begin. The other added, He is young and strong. There are kisses for us all. I lay quiet, looking out under my eyelashes in an agony of delightful anticipation. The fair girl advanced and bent over me till I could feel the movement of her breath upon me. Sweet it was, in one sense. Honey-sweet, and sent the same tingling through my nerves as her voice, but with a bitter underlying the sweet, a bitter offensiveness as one smells in blood. I was afraid to raise my eyelids, but looked out and saw perfectly under the lashes. The girl went on her knees and bent over me, simply gloating. There was a deliberate voluptuousness, which was both thrilling and repulsive. And as she arched her neck, she actually licked her lips like an animal. Till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips and on the red tongue as it lapped the white sharp teeth. Lower and lower went her head as the lips went below the range of my mouth and chin and seemed about to fasten on my throat. Then she paused, and I could hear the churning sound of her tongue as it licked her teeth and lips and could feel the hot breath on my neck. Then the skin of my throat began to tingle, as one's flesh does when the hand that is to tickle it approaches nearer, nearer. I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips on the super-sensitive skin of my throat, and the hard dents of two sharp teeth, just touching and pausing there. I closed my eyes in languorous ecstasy and waited, waited with beating heart. But at that instant, another sensation swept through me as quick as lightning. I was conscious of the presence of the Count, and of his being as if lapped in a storm of fury. As my eyes opened involuntarily, I saw his strong hand grasp the slender neck of the fair woman, and with a giant's power draw it back. The blue eyes transformed with fury, the white teeth champing with rage, the fair cheeks blazing red with passion. But the Count, never did I imagine such wrath and fury, even to the demons of the pit. His eyes were positively blazing. The red light in them was lurid, as if the flames of hellfire blazed behind them. His face was deathly pale, and the lines of it were hard like drawn wires. The thick eyebrows that met over the nose now seemed like a heaving bar of white-hot metal. With a fierce sweep of his arm, he hurled the woman from him and then motioned to the others as though he were beating them back. It was the same imperious gesture I had seen used to the wolves. In a voice which, though low and almost in a whisper, seemed to cut through the air and ring around the room, he said, How dare you? How dare you touch him? Any of you? How dare you cast eyes on him when I had forbidden it? Back, I tell you all. This man belongs to me. Beware how you meddle with him you'll have to deal with me. The fair girl, with a laugh of ribald coquetry, turned to answer him. You yourself never love. You never love. On this the other women joined, and such a mirthless, hard, soulless laughter rang through the room that it almost made me faint to hear. It seemed like the pleasure of fiends. Then the Count turned, after looking at my face attentively, and said in a soft whisper, Yes, I too can love. You yourselves can tell it from the past. Is it not so? Well, now 
I promise you that when I am done with him, you shall kiss him at your will. Now go. I must awaken him. There is work to be done. Are we to have nothing tonight? said one of them, with a low laugh as she pointed to the bag which he had thrown upon the floor and which moved as though there was some living thing within it. For answer, he nodded his head. One of the women jumped forward and opened it. If my ears did not deceive me, there was a, there was a gasp and a low wail, as of a half-smothered child. The women closed round, whilst I was aghast with horror. But as I looked, they disappeared, and with them the dreadful bag. There was no door near them. They could not have passed me without my noticing. They simply seemed to fade into the rays of the moonlight and pass out through the window, for I could see outside the dim, shadowy forms for a moment before they entirely faded away. Then the horror overcame me, and I sank down, unconscious. So, that was something. <laughs> this is a scene that has been adapted and portrayed many times on screen, and you can certainly see why. There is a sexual nature to the scene that filmmakers have found appealing. And this has been depicted in various levels of gratuitous, depending on the time the film was made and the particular audience it was attempting to appeal to. But there's also a creeping dread to this scene as well. Mingled with the sexuality, there is an unease to it. Something about it just isn't right. We know what the brides are going to do. They're going to feed. And sexualizing it is just creepy. You get that in the way Jonathan speaks about the incident. He's aroused, but at the same time repulsed. It is that dichotomy that really adds tension to this scene. The brides are attractive and repulsive at the same time, so that when Dracula intervenes, it's shocking and a relief. And I love how Stoker describes Dracula's voice. Sharp, it cuts through the room, even though it's only a whisper. His power is really on display here, even though it's only a few lines of dialogue and a brief description of his actions. Now, I've been referring to these women in the passage as the brides. That's not something they're called in the novel itself. They only appear for this brief scene and at the end of the book, but they have in popular culture been dubbed the brides of Dracula. And although they only appear briefly, they have become subject of much speculation. Many authors and artists and filmmakers have run with the idea of the brides and spun off stories, novels, feature films. They seem to have struck a chord. And I want to get into why I think that is in just a minute. But first, I suppose I should address the truly disturbing part of this passage. The child. This is gruesome. It always makes me shudder when I read it. Just the idea of it. It still has the power to repulse and disgust even now after so many vampire stories and adaptations of this, I can only imagine what it was like to read in 1897. And I think it's a credit to the writing of Stoker that he can convey, with beautiful language, the most horrifying ideas. It's a joy to read, while at the same time, not a joyful subject. One thing about the language Stoker uses, he uses the word voluptuous a lot, twice in just this short passage. I find this to be troubling, not that, it's a, uh, not that it's a bad word, it's actually a good word. Perfectly descriptive, conveys the meaning he wishes to convey. No, the thing I don't like about it is that, for some reason, I find it extremely hard to say. I had to re-record those lines 
taken at least four times before I got it right, and I still don't think I did. So Bram Stoker was really thoughtless in, <laughs> in overusing that particular word. Very, very rude, in my opinion. Flow-up-shoe-us. Anyway, there's a line where Jonathan says that he seems to recognize the fair bride, but can't quite place how. This comes from a short story called Dracula's Guest, where Jonathan, before coming to the castle, is lost in a storm and is menaced by a female vampire, we assume to be the fair bride. This short story was actually supposed to be part of the novel, but was cut for some reason. In fact, there's something like a hundred pages missing from the start of the novel. Eh, just a little trivia for you. Now I want to get to the one part of this particular passage that fascinates me the most, of the whole novel. Well, that's a bold claim. It intrigues me, let's just say that. It piques my interest. And that's when the fair bride says, you never love. And that right there is interesting in and of itself. This undead woman, this creature, full of cruelty and malice, talking about love, being loved. Is this a memory of her past life? Do the brides truly need love and, and want to be loved by Dracula, even though, even in their ghoulish state? And then there's the fact that it's followed by laughter. Mirthless, hard, soulless laughter is how it's described. So is that now a mockery of love? Is the fair bride giving a little dig towards the Count? Some kind of an insult? The meaning behind which we just don't know about? Again, right there, that would be enough. It's, it's a tantalizing little tidbit that, that adds a mysterious backstory to these women who are already a mystery to begin with. But then we get Dracula's response. Yes, I too can love. You yourselves can tell it from the past. Is it not so? Wow. What's that all about? The implications of what this means, the inferences it makes, are staggering. It hints to a whole other story, a vampire romance. Did Dracula have a true love? Did Dracula have a family? That's actually an interpretation I've read from many reviewers, both the academic and YouTubic. That is that the fair bride, which which means she's blonde, by the way. I'm sure most people know this, but just in case, fair means blonde and dark means brunette, black hair. Uh, that's not referring to complexion. Again, I'm sure most people know this, but meh, I've seen some confusion online, so I just want to be clear. Anyway, one of the interpretations of this line is that the fair bride was, is, Dracula's wife, and that the dark women are his daughters, since they have similar hair color and the same aquiline noses. And the inference is that Dracula had a family life before becoming a vampire, and once turning, he decided to take his family with him. But once life is taken, once life dies, so too does love. Love for them. Love for anything, really. Evil can't love, after all. Other interpretations are that these women were people Dracula wanted to love. By that I mean he attempted to regain or relive aspects of his former self by attempting to make himself a wife. That ultimately fails, of course. Another idea is that the dark women were his sisters, not his daughters, and that he wanted his siblings with him for um, familial love, or, or maybe something a little more untoward. Yeah, um, Dracula has spawned some really... Uh, say, interesting theories on the internet. All that aside, my thoughts are, since we know that 100 pages were cut from the final version, and similar to Dracula's Guest, which 
fleshes out a throwaway line by Jonathan Harker from a bit of text that was cut from the final version, my guess is that the relationship between the brides and Dracula was detailed, that Stoker did write a backstory for these women, but that it was removed from the final draft. And again, this is me speculating. I have no actual proof of this. It just makes sense to me. Regardless if this is true or not, the final version that we do get is wonderfully vague. And that's where my particular love of this passage stems from. That exchange between Dracula and the fair bride, that tantalizingly touched upon but never paid off conversation, it leaves so much wide open to speculation and elaboration. Whole stories can be spun and, and have been spun from this. It is ripe for embellishment. And that's what I would like to do. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to write a story based on this. Just something short, nothing, nothing elaborate. And then do a follow-up episode where I tell it to you. But in addition, I'd also like to hear your thoughts. What do you think is the history of Dracula and his brides? Do you have any stories you'd like to tell about this really unique family? If so, let me know on Twitter, where I'm at Daddy Elk, or on the website, daddyelk.com, where you can leave comments on this episode. Or you can send me an email, comments at daddyelk.com, and let's start a discussion. You see, novels like Dracula have sparked imagination and inspired creators for over a century. It's why I love to revisit them, and I learn something new every time I do. And so I hope you enjoyed listening to me ramble on about this as much as I did in doing the rambling. And so that's, that's going to be it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to me tell the story, and, uh, and I'd really like to know what you think. Reading from texts like this, maybe doing the odd movie review, or talking about old comics and things like that. And of course, I'm going to continue reading my own original stories from time to time. And along the way, I would really like this to be a way to interact and to hear other people's thoughts and stories as well. And if you like what I'm doing, please like and review and all that jazz. And until next time, happy Halloween and goodbye. The Elkcast is a Daddy Elk production.